Good morning, Eugene. As you'll know, we are journeying through the book Song of Songs. And if you're new to this journey with us, then you might well ask yourself, why would we read such an obscure, sometimes racy, but very beautiful book? And why would we explore this book? And actually the answer's right there in the title. Um, Song of Songs is called, is called Song of Songs because it refers to itself as such in the very first verse of the very first chapter. Song of Songs, uh, as, a, as a phrase, is a Hebrew idiom, which is similar to something like King of Kings or Holy of Holies. And basically, this book is calling itself the song above all songs, like the ultimate song. And with a claim like that found in the Word of God, you kind of want to go see uh, if it's true. And certainly this, this book of love poetry has been so beautiful and so rich as we have um, unwrapped it and delved into some of what God is saying to his church, what God is saying to men and women, what God is saying to his people. Um, so that is, that is us. Um, I have the privilege today of, of looking at um, the response of the bride. Now, the response of the bride is just what we're calling it. But basically, after several chapters of the husband praising his wife and um, sharing his adoration for her, she responds. And that's, that's in chapter 7, and that's where we are going to look today. Um, there are pretty much three approaches uh, or three interpretations of this book. Secular scholars see this as a just a love story between a man and a woman, and that is true. Um, Jews would see this as a, a book about God and his chosen people, Israel, and of course that's true as well. But as believers, as Christians, we know that this is also a book about Jesus and his bride, the church. And so all these layers are happening, and, and I'll look into some of them, and I'll kind of jump between layers um, but it's all there in the way that beautiful writing manages to be multi-layered and, and have many messages. So hold on tight to your seats. We are in for a journey today. Um, so we're going to start from chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh, my beloved. Oh, that you were like a brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me, I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. What on earth did we just read? <laughs> okay, there are a few things going on here. Um, what we see is we see a bride who has matured. She's come into her own. She's come to a point where she's taking initiative. She's taking the lead. She's very sensual. Um, she's confident. She's bold. Um, and she has she has moved beyond needing private intimacy with this man, and, and she wants to go on an adventure, and she wants to explore, and she wants to get out and about. Um, and right in the end, there she desperately wants to show the world her love for this man. She she like can't keep it in. And 
If you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to take it out now and to make notes in it. Um, I'm not the most poetic person, and so it is very easy for me to be quite lazy with books like this uh, that just seem too obscure, and it's it's such a headbend to to think what they mean and what they're trying to say. Um, and I love it when I open my Bible and I find these little notes which explain things to me. Um, and they were put there by this awesome little lady called Postcaz. And I often thank Postcaz for things. And one of the things I thank her for is just her little explanatory notes in my Bible. So that when I open that, that uh, book again in a couple of months or a couple of years, I'm like, oh, yes. Oh, yes, that is, that is what God showed me or that is what, what we discovered. So I want to encourage you, if you don't write in your Bible, uh, to really consider doing that. It, it does just make your Bible more accessible. Um, that's a sidebar. <laughs> so let's let's have a look at our scripture. Um, like I said, we are picking up in the aftermath of three glorious chapters of this man um, praising and adoring his wife. He has... Uh, he has complimented her from head to toe and back again, and she must be feeling like a million bucks. Um, it is really beautiful uh, that he has com communicated his love, his admiration, his desire, and his respect for her uh, in these previous poems. And perhaps most beautiful of all is that she has believed him. And her response reflects this because she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Now, this verse might sound a bit familiar, but actually early in the book, she said something similar but different. She said, my beloved is mine. And so before, in, in chapter two, there was this possessive air to it, uh, a sort of incredulous wonder, like the boy is mine. Is this for real? Has he really chosen me? But here at this stage in their love story, the doubt is gone. She knows who she is and she knows whose she is. And right up front, I want to ask us this question. Do you know whose you are? And have you considered how he sees you? And we're going to take a moment now, just pause for a moment. Close your own eyes, as opposed to anyone else's eyes. You know what I mean. Close your eyes on your own. Just consider, whose are you? Can you say that you are God's? Whose are you and how does he see you? So what we've just done is really important because the answer to that question, whose are you and how does he see you, actually determines everything. It, it will define every interaction you have, every decision you'll make. It will determine how you process hardship and those dark nights of the soul. The answer to this question will determine who you marry, what you study, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you spend your life. Whose are you and how does he see you? Let's step into the secular for a minute. I love it when secular studies confirm biblical truths. Multiple um, studies and multiple sources have determined that in terms of our happiness as humans, 10% is determined by circumstance, and 90% is determined by um, our inner workings, our perspective. So in other words, 10% of, of your happiness is decided by what happens to you, and 
a whopping 90% is determined by how you choose to react. And so knowing whose you are gives you perspective. Knowing how he sees you gives you perspective. And this 10%, 90% principle, you know, it, it sounds insane. It sounds crazy. But if you give it some thought, you, you know, those people who have everything, they just seem to have it all, and yet they're not happy. Um, the, this came into kind of stark clarity for me when I said varsity. I had these two friends, uh, both beautiful girls. Um, and the one girl came from Cape Town, mega wealthy, like crazy levels of wealth, private jet, uh, it was a helicopter, private helicopter that her dad owned, uh, you know, like a bookshelf, like that you push and it goes down into a wine cellar because there's a hidden door, that level of wealth. And then there was my friend uh, from the Clan Karoo and she wore secondhand clothing. She was very, um, she was very much a um, bursary kid. She really didn't have a lot at all. Um, this friend, uh, the wealthy one, kept a little note of anything that anyone owed her. This one would get care packages for her mom and she would call the whole, um, our whole corridor, our whole kung, to come share them with her. Uh, this girl was incredibly angry and bitter because her parents got divorced when she was younger. This girl's father committed suicide and yet she never lost her joy. And so when you, when you compare these circumstances, you would think this girl's got it all, and yet this is the one who had the joy. And so our happiness is not determined by our circumstances. And that's how it's possible to see these first world kids with everything, with the world at their, at their fingertips, um, drowning in depression. And then you see these, these uh, impoverished communities, you go to these far-flung places in dire poverty, and yet there's such joy and there's such life. It's because our circumstances don't determine our joy. Our perspective determines it. So how is your perspective? Do you know whose you are? And do you know how he sees you? How is your perspective? Because until you can say in full confidence, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me, until you can say that, you're going to keep looking for belonging and acceptance and fulfillment and security in the arms of the world. And so think for a minute of, of the little girl worrying that her classmates don't like her and being devastated because she wasn't invited. Do you remember the devastation of not being invited to something? Or the little boy who's heartbroken because he wasn't good enough to be picked for the team. Just not good enough. Heartbreaking. Think of the teenager who believes that if she could just get the angle a little bit better on that selfie, just show her cleavage in all its glory, she would rack up, yeah, yeah, she would rack up enough likes to feel liked enough. Or the boy who thinks that if that girl would just give him a second glance, that specific girl, then he would know that he's arrived. But it's, it's adults just as much as the career men and women who believe that just one more promotion one more promotion, then they'll know that they are successful. Or kind of middle-class suburbia who think, if I just had another thousand rand a month, just another thousand rand, then I'd have enough. Never going to be enough. We can even put some kind of bulldust holy filter on it, you know. If the leadership would just see, if they could just recognize the gifting that I have and give me some time on the pulpit, 
then I would be able to bring glory to God and I would feel fulfilled. Or if the music team could just give me a mic, and I've been saying this for years, they could just give me a mic, the heavens would open, the glory of the Lord would rain down upon us, and I would feel so good knowing that my God-given talents were finally being seen. So all these examples, every single one of them, this is the 10%. This is meaningless, temporary nonsense. This isn't what life is made of. This is not where, where our joy is found. If our perspective is that our circumstances determine our joy, we will never be joyful because we will never be good enough. We will never be chosen enough. We will never be liked enough, recognized enough, successful enough, wealthy enough. Do you know whose you are? And have you considered how he sees you? Because then it is enough. Then suddenly it is enough. And can you say with confidence, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. If you can't yet say this, I want to urge you to make it your mission to get to that place. Imagine I told you that the secret to joy was not in climbing the career ladder or earning more money or being more popular or more fit or more thin or having more likes on whatever your social media platform is or in whatever, making the team, making the grade, getting that particular job. What if I told you that's not where your joy is going to be found? What if I told you that your joy is going to be found in the perspective that you are your beloved's and his desire is for you? If it is that simple, then doesn't it make sense to put all our, all that effort that we're putting into all those other things? Imagine we just focused it on believing truth. Imagine we just focused on getting this verse to land in our hearts. So why don't you write this verse on your mirror or stick it on your dashboard or maybe place it as your phone background or tattoo it on your forehead. That would look good. More importantly, why don't you decide to meditate on this verse, to think about it, to sing songs that reflect it. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Because when this penny drops, when this revelation lands, when this truth takes root in our hearts, in our hearts, it determines our 90%. It takes us from being insecure, possessive believers to being mature, content believers. And that is when God is glorified. If you want to glorify God, you find your contentment in Him. That is when He is glorified. And, and that is when, when we, are, when we find our contentment in God, that is when we stop staring at our own belly buttons, we stop being navel gazers, we stop feeding our own egos, and we start scouring the horizon, looking up, looking out, looking to bring glory to Him, looking to head out on the adventures God calls us to. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In verse 2, the bride continues. She says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. So here is a woman who's found her confidence. Affirmation from her lover has led her to a place where she knows who she is and how he sees her and that his desire is for her. And within that knowing, she is so confident to take initiative. And I want to look at this, this portion from two perspectives. 
So first up, we're going to look at it just from a very human husband-wife kind of um, perspective. And you see this woman that's so confident because she's been so affirmed. And in that confidence, she begins to be bold and adventurous and sensual and to take initiative. And it's a beautiful thing to see. She's so wonderfully comfortable in her own skin. She's taking the lead here. She's not coyly hiding in her bed and thinking, oh, maybe he'll knock, maybe he won't. She is far past that. She's like, I want my man and I'm going to let him know it. It's, it's not what you expect, is it? It's not what you expect to find in the Bible. And yet there it is. She wants him and she's letting him know that she wants him. And, you know, a couple of years ago, a young friend of mine um, got married and someone gave her the book Sheet Music to read before uh, before her wedding night. And if you are under the age of 35, you might not know that, in fact, sheet music was uh, almost required reading. It was like our set workbook for um, for couples in the church who are getting married and, and you know, exploring the wonder of sex. And uh, she had a very interesting reflection on the book. She said that it seemed to her that the book was written, it's, it's a, you know, it's a helpful book. There's a lot in there that's helpful. The diagrams are disturbing, but it's a helpful book. Um, but she said, you know, the perspective, the frame of this book is that actually sex is the due of the husband and the duty of the wife. And when she said that, it, it, it hit a nerve because it rang true. And actually, it rang true of a lot of what is communicated in churches around sexuality. We have these horrible um, stereotypes of the frigid wife with a perpetual headache and the lusty husband who will take whatever he can get. And, and we're made to believe that women are either very chaste and coy or they're... Um, improper and indecent and actually this is absolutely not what song, song of songs is modeling to us we're seeing something very different here god does not have um he has not created sex for his sons he's created it for his sons and his daughters for the pleasure of both it is intended every bit as much for the fulfillment of his daughters as it is for the fulfillment of his sons and i think one of the beautiful things about this book is that it makes it pretty clear. It makes it pretty clear. This woman is not trying to do her duty by her husband. No, she's pursuing something that delights her. And ladies, if, if you believe, believe differently, I hope and I pray that that belief shifts today. That a fulfilling physical intimacy with your husband is your portion from God. If, some, if sex is something you do for your husband only, you've got it wrong, you've been robbed, and it will lead to resentment. And it is worth sorting out. And you are welcome to come chat to me or chat to one of your leaders and, and let's sort it out. This is a thing worth fighting for. This is a thing that God has for you. And so while I'm going there anyway, and I'm speaking of things unspoken of, I'm going to tell you something deeply personal, deeply personal. So hold on to your hats. Apparently I have no filters today. And um, 
And I'm telling you this because perhaps if you are in that space, this might help you. So the deeply personal thing. Sex is very often, almost always, a battlefield of the mind. And all manner of things can come into our heads while we're in that place of physical intimacy. And these might be unwelcome thoughts, they might be ungodly thoughts, they might just be really boring to-do list, grocery shopping kind of thoughts. And we have to kind of keep taking our thoughts captive, I think particularly as women, I think for men it's pretty clear-cut. But, but the, deeply th- the deeply personal thing that I actually want to share with you is that I frequently pray to my father in heaven while engaging in physical intimacy with my husband. <laughs> and why am I telling you this? Why am I telling this incredibly personal thing? Number one, it would be nice to see Steph blushing for once. So Steph, I hope you are blushing right now. <laughs> but actually, it's because I think this is helpful to know. I think the separation of church and state, the separation of sex and the rest of our lives, there's something, there's something amiss here. We need to redeem sex from the smut of the world and from the prudishness of the church in years gone by. Sex is not some dark little area of our lives that we need to shield God from. Well, he can't know that I'm also a sexual being. Like, he would be so embarrassed. No, God's made you that way. God is not scared of your sexuality, for goodness sake. He's gifted you with your sexuality. And so, in the same way that I often thank God before eating a meal and I acknowledge his provision and I ask him to bless that meal to my body, it's a similar concept often start in my head with God this is this is an act of worship like won't you bless our union right now like my mind's going to place I don't want it to go will you help me keep my my thoughts and, and my heart pure because I want my physical intimacy with my husband to be spiritually pure and Satan loves Satan loves this battleground because we don't talk about it we don't talk about it so we so we we feel shame and we feel embarrassment because our thoughts go to untoward places but actually of course our thoughts go to untoward places we are lambasted with things all day long wherever we look so of course our thoughts go there and so we invite God into that with us and we partner with God to keep the marriage bed holy once I know that I am my beloved's I'm God and his desires for me then there really can be no part of my life that I don't include him in and if If including God in your sex life sounds wrong, then I want to challenge you that perhaps you have a wrong view of sex. Perhaps you've bought into the world story that sex has to be ungodly to be physically satisfying. And if that is how how it is for you, and if that is how how you feel, then please do business with God. You're not going to shock him. He already knows. So do business with God. Repent to him and ask him to redeem this for you. He has such good things for his children. Wives, Song of Songs tells us that delighting in physical intimacy with our husband is our portion from our father. That is something that he has for us. It is something worth pursuing. And husbands, if you long for your wife to find confidence in this area, if you long for her to long for you, then take some tips from the man in the previous chapters. Show your wife in word and deed that you desire her. And I don't just mean physically and sexually. Like, I think if I don't feel 
loved in every aspect of who I am, then I don't want to be vulnerable and open in the most um, vulnerable aspect of who I am, if that makes sense. If I'm, if I'm not um, appreciated in all areas of, of, of my like makeup, of, of my personhood, then it becomes very difficult for me to find freedom in the most vulnerable area of who I am. So if you want your wife to be confident enough to take initiative in this area, then actually that's only realistic if she is treated in a way where she can be confident to take initiative in all areas. There's been such a skewed emphasis on husbands as the head of the home. Ruling, reigning, have the, having the final say, because Ephesians says that husbands are the head of the home, right? And so it's biblical. Surely. And so we have generations of men believing that respect means that they get to decide how things go and that the, the dutiful wife's responsibility is to fall in line. But that's, that's a half-reading of the scripture because the full scripture says that, yes, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And he gives his life for the church. And so if we're going to parallel headship of the husband to Christ's headship of the church, this is a headship which is the very opposite of domineering. It is not self-serving. It is not ego-driven. It is the epitome of self-sacrifice. That's what being the head of your home means. It doesn't mean dominating your wife. It doesn't mean that she gets no say. It doesn't mean that she dare not take initiative. That's not what we see in Christ's headship. Thank you, Lord. Jesus wants his bride to blossom. He wants that. He encourages and he trusts his bride to be creative and to take initiative. Do you? I think we better move on. I feel like maybe I'm going to receive some emails after this. <laughs> there I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh my beloved. Now, I don't want us to, to kind of go to the other extreme and see this woman as self-serving and as being all about her pleasure. That is not it. The more secure she is in her love for this man, the more she wants to delight him and serve him and spoil him and romance him, and it is beautiful. So I'm not saying that we go from an extreme to another extreme. No, no, no. I'm talking about a mutually submissive relationship where both parties seek to serve and delight one another. That's the picture of Song of Songs. That's, that's this beautiful picture of marriage that we see in this book. On to chapter 8. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. This is such an uncomfortable portion of scripture for those of us who have siblings. But actually, what she's saying here is simply that she is so enamored with this man that she can barely keep her hands off him. And and if if he was a brother, then she could kind of be affectionate in public, but she now needs to be proper because... He's not her brother. 
and she's just I think she's just being playful I think she's just being sweet and dramatic and romantic and just trying to show him trying to tell him how desirable he is to her and she says his left hand is under my head and his right hand em embraces me and when I read this I just imagine him dipping her and kissing her and these two people who are so comfortable with each other and playful and they fit together now so well and so beautifully but I said that we would look at this portion of scripture from two perspectives. So now we've looked at it from the kind of human level, the man and woman, you know, husband and wife stuff. But now I want us to consider the same passage with the lens of Christ and his church on. So we're going to read it again now through that lens. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh my beloved. So here we have the bride of Christ. She's no longer incredulous that she's chosen. She's secure that she is chosen. She knows who she is. She's no longer trying to prove herself. She's free and excited and inspired to take initiative. The reference to the fields reminds us of the verse in John, which refers to the mission fields. The fields are ripe for harvest. And so this bride is not hoarding up her groom all for herself. She wants adventures with him. She wants to share him with the world. Do we? Is that what we want? As a church, do we want to share our groom with the world? Do we want to take adventures with him? You know, we often see churches playing a bit of a hospital type role where broken, hurt people come to find their healing. And that is beautiful and it's fitting, but it should only be the season, a season in the story of a church. Because if a church remains in that space, and if we as believers remain in that space, we become bloated and self-serving and comfortable and ineffective. We cater to our comforts and our preferences. We become like the bride who wants to stay home with her husband. She wants to keep him away from everyone. She wants to keep him all to herself. And there's a place for that. It's called the honeymoon. And the honeymoon is this wonderful time of discovery and excitement. And it's so indulgent. But it's a season. It has to be a season. We have to move beyond the honeymoon to the marriage. Because... While a honeymoon is all about the couple, a good marriage is about society. It's about community and family. It's about service and adventure. It's about future generations. You can't stay in the honeymoon phase as believers. We need to think outward. We need to think more broadly. We need to have our eyes on the horizon. A mature church is one which steps out of self-care toward mission. A mature church is one that offends our comforts and our preferences. A mature church is one which costs us. Because a mature church is one which leads to adventures with our King. A mature church is one which says, come Jesus, come with me. Let's go to my colleagues and see if their hearts are open to you. Or come my beloved, I, I can't keep you to myself. I, I need to show them. I need to show them how wonderful you are, how good you are to us. I need to show them. 
Oh Lord, I love you so. I, I want to show you how much I can't help but show you how much I love you. A mature church is not distracted by the naysayers and the scoffers and the critics. A mature church has eyes only for her beloved and wants only to do that which honors and delights him, regardless of the cost to her own comfort. Men and women of New Gen, do you see what God is doing in our midst? Do you see how he is maturing us? He's calling us to look beyond our own comforts, our own preferences. And he's inviting us to so delight in him that it would overflow into all aspects of our lives so that we'd not be able to stop speaking of his goodness to us. The world is so, so dark. And he enlists us to be light so that unbelievers would be able to taste and see that, his, that he is good and his love endures forever. New Gen, do you know whose you are? Do you know how he sees you? He sees you as his beautiful bride who he loved so much that he gave up his life on the ghastly cross for her. We are his and his desire is for us. Let us not be distracted by the voices of the world who will always tell us that we are not enough, we're not good enough. Our only priority is to delight in him and find our contentment in him. And when we find our contentment in God and in God alone, then he is so glorified through us. If you are able to, and uh, there's no pressure here, but if you are able to, I wanna invite you to kneel um, I'm not going to do it because then I'll go off camera. But I want to invite you to kneel before our groom, with, with, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Let's kneel and pray. God, I pray that according to the riches of your glory, that you will grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth of your love, which surpasses knowledge and that we will be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, Lord, to you who is able to do more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.